Good evening and welcome. It's KVC Arts. I'm David Fleming. It's all Pink Floyd tonight as we speak with Bill Cobb, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to Dark Side of the Moon. This is a very new book which very closely examines the time of around Barrett's departure from Pink Floyd through the transition of finding who they were as a band and who they'd become. The most casual, casual listener would at least recognize, I would say, Money or Another Brick in the Wall Part Two. And this book really takes a person from the earliest days to what many really think of as Pink Floyd. So with the stuff that I'll be playing in the background, that'll help. But try to get a person who doesn't know Pink Floyd to understand. Try to talk about the sound and, of course, the feel of Pink Floyd as we think of it in the current setting versus the Sid Barrett Pink Floyd, the Arnold Lane Pink Floyd, you know? Well, the Pink Floyd that most people are familiar with, as you mentioned, tends to be things like Money and Us and Them and then going forward, songs like Wish You Were Here and then, of course, the bigger hits off of The Wall, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Hey You, Comfortably Numb. There's a kind of a mid-tempo, sort of ethereal, dreamy, yet melancholy sort of vibe that I think characterizes a lot of Pink Floyd's music. And so that's really the, the, the core character. I mean, it's a wide and varied body of music, but sure. if you had to characterize it in just a few words, I'd call it sort of mid-tempo melancholy. nice way of saying it. It's the early days, certainly, of what we started to call prog rock or progressive rock and experimental sounds and, again, the ethereal quality that you mentioned. That is, I think, what most people will think of as Pink Floyd beyond the disco driven (laughs) Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. But so the earliest days, though, when uh, Sid Barrett, really the man responsible for getting this group together, it was a much, much different sound. Try to talk people through what the earlier Pink Floyd sound The earliest music from Pink Floyd has very, very little to do with what their later sound would eventually become. The band was founded by Sid Barrett, and the kind of music that they would do on their first few singles and on their first album, The Piper Against the Dawn, in many ways sort of represented the two sides of the coin of the sort of 1967 Summer of Love. The black and green scarecrow, as everyone knows, stood with a bird on his hat and swore everywhere he didn't care. He stood in a field where barley grows. His head did no thinking, his arms didn't move, except when the wind cut up off and A lot of the music Barrett wrote was informed by uh, English children's literature and had sort of a childlike sense of wonder filtered through, well, LSD, quite honestly, with songs about scarecrows and gnomes and cats and things like that. The other side of what Barrett and the early Pink Floyd was doing was much more of a freeform abstract kind of thing, not really what we would come to know in later years as jam 
not really jam music. It's more just sort of free form. In a lot of ways, it's close to free jazz, but without jazz chops. Mm, wow, nice. Well put. It's interesting, though, that some of the stuff, if I'm not mistaken, is what attracted you and got you into Floyd to begin with, is the fact that they would go E-A-E-A for, you know, 18 minutes, and you could play along with that on the piano. Let's talk about your earliest of introductions to uh, Pink Floyd. How and when, and how old were you? I guess I was probably about 11 or 12. I was taking piano lessons, and I was having to learn traditional rudimentary classical stuff that a keyboardist has to learn. Bach, Bizet, Brahms, that sort of thing, or simpler versions of their works. Sure. And I was fine with that, but, you know, I was a rock fan at the same time, and I was getting a little bored with the classical stuff and just didn't really resonate with me that much. I started listening to albums like The Dark Side of the Moon, which came out in March 1973, and I thought, now this stuff is really cool. I got a book of sheet music of rock songs, but it was all wrong. It had been put together by, gosh, who knows whom, but they were arrangements where basically the right-hand melody was the vocal line and the left hand was a sort of simplified chord pattern. These sounded like sing-along versions of the songs. They sounded nothing like the records I had at home. Right. So when my teacher announced that she was going to be moving and gave me a list of other teachers with whom I could continue my studies, I threw the list away, took all the money I had <laughs> saved, which was about $100, $150, and I bought a very basic polyphonic synthesizer and a guitar amp and set those up in my bedroom and started playing along with my Pink Floyd records. And what I discovered is that because of the sort of glacial pace of some of Pink Floyd's music, especially Wish You Were Here, the one that followed Doug sure, and then sure. sometimes they would hold the same chord for a couple of measures giving someone like me the opportunity to sort of move his fingers around the keyboard, basically to work this stuff out by ear. You know, it's not like playing the music of other progressive bands where, you know, there might be nine different chords in a song. Hmm. The stuff was fairly straightforward. So I really got into it on a musical level, and I sort of dug into that stuff. And that's really how I learned to play by ear, which now some 40 some odd years later is the only way I play. I can't read music anymore. I'm thinking that we are close to the same age so you came into them after the fact. What was the first album that you encountered? Was it Dark Side? Dark Side was the first one. I was about nine when that came out. Okay. Yeah, that was the first thing that I heard and that intrigued me. In those days I pretty much had a rule that I wouldn't buy an LP unless I liked at least three songs on yes. it. Yes. And I don't recall now if I made an exception for Dark Side or not. I think I may have just picked it up on the strength of the cover. But whatever the reason, I immediately fell in love with it. And then I did what lots and lots of American fans did. I began to follow along with them from that point forward. So I got Wish You Were Here when that came out, and I got Animals and so forth. But what I began to do was dig back into their catalog. And I was surprised to find just how different yes. a lot of that music really, really was. You know, with the benefit of hindsight now, there are little clues, there are little hints of the directions that they would go, even in some of their earliest material. So there is some connection between that early stuff and what they would eventually do. But I don't think anyone who would have heard The Piper at the Gates of Dawn could have ever predicted the direction that the band would eventually take. Oh, right. No way. It's such a different thing. And... We will certainly be having some of that. I've got a bicycle playing in the background as, <laughs> as we go through this, I assure you. 
I'm David Fleming in conversation with Bill Kopp, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to the Dark Side of the Moon. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, also at kvcrnews.org. You were talking about the strength of the cover, and so I want to talk about the cover of your book. It's a picture of the band with, well, let's say the original four and David Gilmore, but one of the people, Sid Barrett, is fading away, and it could be interpreted different ways. Is he fading away, or is he still there hanging on as a ghost, which he did for some of the albums? Are you the one responsible for that cover, or who did this? Basically, without going into needless detail, my publisher said, okay, we've got a budget, you can choose a photo that you want. And so I went through the typical stock archives, Getty, Alamy, so on and so forth. Hmm. And all the pictures that I found of Pink Floyd were either wall era or were shots that most people have seen countless times. Yes. I knew the shot that I wanted. It was a shot that Pink Floyd was a five-piece for only about four weeks in January of 1968. Right. And I could find low-resolution copies of the photo that I was interested in, you know, pretty much all over the Internet. But as far as finding a licensable version, I was having no luck. Eventually, I discovered that the man who took the photograph has never really put it on any of those licensed sites. It's a gentleman named Peter Jenner, who also happened to be the original manager of the band. So I got in touch with him and asked him if he would be willing to license the photo for the cover. He was, and I said, hey, while we're at it, how about an interview? He said yes, and so halfway through my book, I had to go back and rewrite a whole bunch of it because suddenly I had this wonderful resource. So I got the high-res photo from them, and then I did the Photoshop work on it, making Sid into sort of, as you say, a a ghost-like figure. And the two different interpretations that you mentioned, they're both right. You know, in 68, he really was fading away quickly, but his, maybe not his specter, because he didn't die at that time, uh, but his presence went on to be felt and to uh, influence the band in some unusual ways for quite a long time thereafter. Oh, truly, and some truly beautiful ways that we will get, thinking namely of Wish You Were Here as an album and some of the songs within that one. As you mentioned, for about four weeks or so that it was the five of them, but then for most of 1968, it was Roger Waters, David Gilmour, Rick Wright, and Nick Mason. So we think of this period with Piper at the Gates of Dawn and Saucer Full of Secrets. Sid was a part of Piper at the Gates of Dawn, but pretty much gone for most of 68. Let's talk about the departure, if you will, of Sid Barrett. And I guess it's fairly well documented. It's not like we're digging up dirt on the man by now. Not at all. The transition from being a band led by Sid to being a band that he wasn't in went very quickly. The Piper of the Gates of Dawn came out in 1967. In the fall and early winter, they were on a package tour of England headlined by Jimi Hendrix with a number of other bands, a showcase kind of set. You know, right. 20 minutes, then they're off, and the next band, 20 minutes, and then you know, and then Hendrix would be the headliner. Sid was becoming really, really erratic and unreliable. Sometimes he would wander off before the set. Sometimes he'd stick around but play a single chord through the entire performance. On a couple of occasions, they had to draft at the last minute someone to fill in for Sid. One time, they asked Davey O'List, who was the guitarist in a band called The Nice, 
the Nice are most famous historically as being the band that had Keith Emerson on keyboards. Oh, okay, okay. Um, another time they asked the guitarist from Tomorrow to fill in. Right. Uh, he was happy to do it, and at the last minute, Sid showed up, and so that guitarist, a gentleman named Steve Howe, yes, indeed. didn't get to play with Pink Floyd, but he went on to some success with a band called Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, they saw a fair yeah, amount of Yes. I've heard of somewhat, them. Yeah. So another time, a childhood friend of Sid Barrett's was drafted to fill in, a guitarist named David Gilmore. That was in December of 67. By January 68, the decision had been made to bring Gilmore on as a permanent member, essentially to sort of back up slash cover for Sid. You know, Gilmore was, even at that point, a superb guitarist and uh, something of a mimic. You know, you'd say, okay, play like Hendrix or play like B.B. King or play like mm. Sid Barrett, and he could do it. So uh, he was brought in to sort of back Sid up, and so they did just a handful of gigs as a five-piece. And as the story, which, as you say, is well-documented, goes, and it's interesting that no one remembers exactly which person said what in this conversation, but sure. one of the members on the way to a gig said, should we stop and pick up Sid? And another said, let's not. <laughs> and so the decision was made to continue without Sid, which really wasn't something I think that they took lightly, because no, let's no. face it, Sid was the leader of the band, the founder of the band, the sole guitarist, the primary songwriter. He wrote the lion's share of the band's material. Yeah. The other members altogether, I think, had written maybe three or four songs total by that point, yeah. and most of which were not really that distinguished songs. And Sid was the best-looking one. He was, when they did interviews, about half of the responses at least came from Sid. So he was the center of gravity of the band. With him gone, the band's management said, well, if you're going to you know, give Sid the heave-ho, we're going to go with him because we think he's a better risk. So they really had to regroup. Sid was present for a few of the sessions that would eventually yield a saucer full of secrets, that album. But with the exception of one or two tracks, his presence is barely felt, even on what he did play on. And they just had to continue without him, and they spent the next five years finding their way. Yes. Which they really did quite quickly, actually. They kind of had to. It was a trial by fire, and sort of with supplements in film scores. We'll touch on that in just a bit. One more thing on Sid, and I think that you reference this in the book. You don't talk about it greatly, but... Folks talk about Sid Barrett's departure, and it can be attributed to perhaps schizophrenia, LSD, a combination of the two. There are a lot of things that his more and more erratic behavior could be attributed to. But when they left him, in essence, in early 68, they did see him again one day in the studio, showing up at the studio. You know the day I'm talking about? Absolutely. And as I found interviewing a number of people who were actually there, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't one day. It was a number of days during oh. the sessions for the album Wish You Were Here. Sid began showing up fairly regularly. And at first, the band didn't recognize him. He would come in, he brought his lunch, and he would sit in the canteen. And on at least one occasion, he said, I'm ready to do my bit. And they were somewhat perplexed by that. He was somewhat unrecognizable. He started to go bald and he put on some weight. He looked quite a bit different. But to be fair, they hadn't been completely out of touch. After Sid Barrett left the band or was, you know, escorted out of the band, however you care to look at it, sure. they stayed on pretty good terms with him. In fact, on both of Sid Barrett's solo albums, 
some or all of his ex-bandmates were very, very much involved. In fact, David Gilmour produced the second one. Yeah, didn't he even play drums on one of the tracks as well, David Gilmour? That's correct. Oddly That's enough. It. That's right, he did, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. I'm David Fleming. Tonight's KVC Arts is entirely Pink Floyd related in conversation with Bill Kopp, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to the Dark Side of the Moon, though we will be touching lightly on Wish You Were Here and The Wall as well. In a churchyard by a river So again, we're talking about these early days, but the point of this book is that it's the reinvention of the group after Sid left and after this stylistic difference. It's not like they suddenly said, okay, now we can do the spacey stuff. There was this period, and as you mentioned earlier, there were these little clues dropped here and there, but you would have to hear us and them before you would recognize it from something earlier or the stylistic approach that just barely was hinted at in the soundtrack for more. Let's talk about that for a bit now, this transformation. And not a transformation, that again, it makes it sound like they just did a quick turnabout. So let's talk about this finding of oneself, because the next several albums, well, I guess the soundtrack for more, that's a good one to start with. We've got examples of some of these hints that you were talking about, some of the sounds that Pink Floyd would have later on. But we also have things like different people contributing to the process, and this would eventually become an issue. Right. In fact, we could even back up a little bit before that and point out briefly that in the immediate wake of Sid's departure, the first thing the band tried to do was write songs in a Sid Barrett pop style. Point Me at the Sky and a couple other singles, which were total flops. And they realized very quickly that that really did not suit their collective musical personality. So they began kind of experimenting and trying different things, long-form pieces like the title track on A Saucer Full of Secrets. Sure. But then with the album More, a wonderful thing really happened. And in retrospect, I think it was really important to the band's development. As they began getting film soundtrack work, More being the first major of those, although mm-hmm. there had been several lesser-known things they had done prior to that, they were more or less given writing prompts. The director might say, well, we need an up-tempo rock piece to go here, and we need sort of a, a really hard rock pastiche here, and maybe something folky and pastoral for this scene. So as developing songwriters, having those prompts, if you will, was, I think, a useful guide. It gave them something to work toward. But the thing about the band during that period, 1968 to 73, Mm. is that they were very, very collaborative. There wasn't the overwhelming presence or influence of any one of them. Each of them brought their own unique talents to bear on the works that they were creating. And the sound really was a reflection of their collective musical identity. So more, for example, the soundtrack that they were lucky enough to get when they were working on their contract, So they didn't see more. They didn't really see the film and write songs to accompany what they were doing. This song that's actually, I think, called The Party Scene. This was one of those, hey guys, give us an up-tempo, somewhat rocky. Exactly right. (laughs) That's that's the way they approached it, and it worked. Having finally seen the film after years of 
hearing about it. The music makes a kind of sense in the context. It works as well as any film of that type could when you're, uh, for lack of a better word, limiting oneself to the work of just one band, as mm. opposed to the way a lot of soundtracks are done now. Is, well, we'll just grab songs from a dozen different artists. and But here, you know, they were writing to order, and, uh, you know, they did pretty well with it. Going into the next few albums, Adam Hart Mother, that's a good example as one to look at as this evolutionary album, you know, in that it's broken up into individual contributions on one side, then it's a group effort on the other side. Metal was kind of the same way, too. Right. Adam Hart Mother has the uh, sidelong suite, the Adam Hart Mother suite, which was the band's first major outside collaboration. They worked closely with Ron Deason, an avant-garde slash classical composer. The band had written basically a rock tune, sort of the main motif that you hear within Adam Hart Mother, and they collaborated with Giesen, who came up with some sort of really bizarre avant-garde sort of things to tie things together. And it was the first time the band had ever worked with brass and uh, vocal chorale. It's interesting, in subsequent years, the band collectively would pretty much come to disown Adam Hart Mother, but uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's a really important step in their development. You know, it was the second of three major long works that they did in that period, A Saucer Full of Secrets being the first, Adam Hart Mother Sweet being the second, and a lot of people's favorite Pink Floyd track from the earlier years, Echoes being the third. Absolutely. The album Metal. Absolutely. That's that wonderful side, too. Again, Adam Hart Mother, I feel a little bit unfortunate that that was my first experience at oh, 11 or 12 or something like that. But then in retrospect, yes, exactly. It's something to appreciate after the fact, after you understand more or there's a more musical sense in your head about that. But looking at metal, this is another one that is truly, it's a great album, first of all. It stands on its own, but it also serves as one of these, if you will, evolutionary type pieces because of that entire side two of Echoes. And that gives us not just a glimpse, but like a you're soaking in it now kind of moment of this is what we are going to think of as Pink Floyd. But the first side, after one of these days, it goes on to a bit of a variety of different types of songs, including even blues numbers with a hound barking in the background, you know? So were they going in and was this a case of folks saying, okay, let's each go into a room, as it were, and come back with something? Or were these cases then of, well, David brought something in and then the rest of them worked on it? You know what I'm saying? Then it became a group effort after that? I think that the latter is closer to the way that it worked on most of those albums, is that, you know, someone would have an idea and the band would collectively sort of collaborate on it and build upon it. The exception there, one that describes the more of them working individually, would be the studio LP one of the two LPs in the Umaguma album. Oh, right. On Umaguma, you've got one disc, which is uh, live tracks, mm. and then the other disc, each of the four musicians takes a half of a side to work on their own sort of, well, self-indulgent sort of musical explorations. Nick Mason's is particularly strange. It's lots of drums and things, of course, but even on that, there are hints of things that they would do later on Dark Side of the Moon. And David Gilmore's piece, which is probably the most conventionally rock-oriented of the bunch, showed his facility on a number of instruments, and he's actually playing drums on his tracks there as well. You know what? Our motto here is where you learn something new every day, and so there, I just did. 
I'm David Fleming in conversation with Bill Kopp, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to the Dark Side of the Moon. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, also at kvcrnews.org. We were talking about metal, and we ended up going in this wonderful chronological fashion, but before going on with the rest of the albums, they did get another movie to score, and this ended up being released as Obscured by Clouds. I do not speak French, so I couldn't even say it, but talk about this. How did they end up getting this one, by the way? This included well, in that, their lineup. That's, uh, Obscured by Clouds, or The Valley, I won't try to pronounce it in French either, okay. <laughs> um, was another film directed by Barbet Schrader, the same director who did more. Uh-huh. And they picked up that gig. And what's interesting about that is, just to give a quick timeline, Yes. in January of 1972, they rented some warehouse space from the Rolling Stones and went in and began routining and writing material for a new live work that they were going to do, which had the provisional title of Eclipse, <laughs> a piece for assorted lunatics. <laughs> they started performing that work in late January. They then started doing sessions, uh, rec- beginning recording what would eventually be The Dark Side of the Moon. About halfway through those sessions, they stopped what they were doing, headed on over to France, went in the studio there and spent a week or two and recorded Obscured by Clouds. Then they came back home, continued to do uh, live dates, continued to develop the music that would be on the dark side of the moon, continued to record and finish making the album. So then they released Obscured by Clouds and then they released The Dark Side of the Moon. So it occupies an odd place in their chronology. And for people who have never heard anything at all by Pink Floyd prior to The Dark Side of the Moon, I tend to refer them to Obscured by Clouds because while it was recorded in a much more rudimentary sort of studio, so it doesn't have the same polish and sheen that Dark Side of the Moon has, musically it's quite similar in a lot of ways because it was made essentially during the Dark Side of the Moon period. I didn't think about it because, yeah, I always looked at it as a, okay, 1972, Obscured by Clouds, 1973, Dark Side, you know, like this very linear thing I had, ignorantly speaking, I think, I will just admit, I'd never thought about these being these continual, these works in progress, much like, you know, you'll find bootlegs here and there that have breathe on them long before Dark Side, let's say, so. In fact, we were talking about, you know, how they started performing what would be known as the Dark Side of the Moon Mm -hmm. in January of 72. The album came out in March of 73. I don't know the exact number of times that the band played that work, the Dark Side of the Moon, prior to the album coming out, but I know that there are a lot of bootlegs, and I have 47 of them. (laughs) I have 47 shows that were performed prior to the release of the album. I'm, I'm, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because I had made a note of that, but it's one of those notes that ended up on a folded up business card or matchbook that went through the dryer (laughs) kind of thing, so, oh my God, yeah. What's so interesting about that Uh is that listening to those in chronological order, You really can, it's like being a fly on the wall or a fly in the audience and witnessing the development and the ways in which the work changed, sometimes from night to night. And there's a lot of reasons why The Dark Side of the Moon was as successful as it was, why it's such a fully realized album. But one of the many reasons and one of the most important reasons is that they worked out all the kinks, they smoothed the whole thing out in front of an audience. 
we'll try this. No, that didn't quite work right. Let's try something else. So when they finally committed to the Dark Side of the Moon to tape, as it were, it was a fully realized piece of work that they had really, you know, hammered out over many, many, many nights of rehearsal, of practice, and of live performance. This was kid-tested, mother-approved. Actually, the furthest yes. thing from mother-approved. But yes, it was absolutely. <laughs> they had offered it to the audience. They knew what worked, what didn't. The guys in Pink Floyd, different from a lot of other bands, but similar to groups like the Beatles, when they were in the studio, they paid attention to what was going on. Mm -hmm. They didn't just leave everything to the uh, men in white coats, as was the case <laughs> with EMI. They paid attention to what was being done from a technical standpoint and how it was being done, and they learned from that. So more than a lot of their contemporaries, when they went in the studio, they knew what they wanted, but they also had a pretty good idea of how to get it already. So they produced Dark Side of the Moon. That album is produced by Pink Floyd, but they had as their engineer, one of the best in the business, Alan Parsons, who had worked on the Beatles' Abbey Road. In fact, Pink Floyd had a long history of working with people involved with the Beatles. Their uh, producer from their albums, most of their early albums, was a guy named Norman Smith, who had been an engineer on a lot of Beatles sessions over the years. Well, and weren't the Beatles even in the studio A, B, and C doing Sgt. Pepper's while one of the earliest albums was being recorded? That's right. The Sid Barrett era band was at Abbey Road in one of the studios at the same time the Beatles were working on. I forget which song, but they went in and were somewhat gobsmacked to see the Beatles at work, and they paid attention for a little while and then went back to working on their own album. These studio tricks, as it were, there was a fascinating thing where they were able to recreate the Doppler effect. They did it with simply a fade and a volume shift, but they did that because they were paying attention. More specifically now, I wonder if you'd be able to tell, for folks listening, how they were able to get that opening sound for the song Money, that looping of the change and the bells and all that kind of thing, because it was done in the most unconventional of ways. Do you think you can make that possible without visual aids? I think so. Imagine, basically, remember that we're talking about the pre-digital era here, so everything that was recorded had to be recorded on the magnetic tape. And bands like the Beatles had already done a lot with things like, if you go back to Sgt. Pepper, the track being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, yeah. there's a section that really evokes a carousel, and they achieved that by recording all different sorts of bits of music and taking the scissors to those tapes, cutting them up into small pieces, literally throwing them in the air and then reassembling them Huh. gluing them back together, splicing them together in a random order. Something along those lines is how the band created the opening motif. It's at a beat of 7-4, which is a very unconventional time signature, especially for a hit single. So they had the sounds of stacks of paper being ripped, of coins being dropped, of a cash register doing its, I'm not sure what you call that. Cha-ching. Right, cha-ching, right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they spliced those together in a seven beat, and so they made this tape recording. And that tape recording was made quite early. In fact, the very first night that they performed Money, which I want to say it was either Bristol or Brighton, I should know this, it's in the book, um, <laughs> they had used so much power for their lights and everything 
that there was a, a drain on the playback machine, and so when the song was supposed to start and the tape began, it played at a greatly reduced speed. So Roger Waters gamely starts to play along with the bass line, dum, 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 but it's, it's about half the speed. And about, oh, 30 seconds into the song or so, they throw in the towel and Waters makes the announcement, we're going to take a break and come back and play some older material. And so they abandoned Dark Side of the Moon the first time they tried to play it. Their ambitions, and Nick Mason is on record as saying this a number of times, sometimes their ambitions somewhat outran their abilities. But the fact that they kept persisting is part of what made them successful. I may have gone a little off topic on that one, sorry. No, it's cool, we got it. This started by talking about the sound effects opening the song Money and just the fact that they were able to do unconventional things since we associate that so much with them. These spacey sounds, these pans of left and right, these quadraphonic effects, if you're lucky enough. We're speaking with Phil Kopp, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to the Dark Side of the Moon. Just ahead, just a bit of the wall, and the fact that it might not have been Pink Floyd at the concert you went to. You're listening to KVCR. It's on 91.9 KVCR. Also at kvcrnews.org. Let's take just a slight break from Pink Floyd for a second. We are talking about this wonderful, very new book. When did this actually come out? It came out February 15th. Okay, okay, yeah, it could hardly be newer. We're talking about reinventing Pink Floyd from Sid Barrett to the dark side of the moon. We're not going to take a break from Pink Floyd. Uh, one of the things that opens <laughs> the book... <laughs> Well, you know, this is just cool. And so one of the things that opens the book beyond this uh, wonderful introduction with Jerry Shirley, I want to talk first, though, about why another Pink Floyd book. I'm quoting you because we've got this, what is it, another Pink Floyd book, but there's a parenthetical statement of why. So why another Pink Floyd book? There have been quite a few, quite a few books written about the band. Mm. And a lot of them very, very good ones. My idea was to take a little bit of a different approach. I didn't want to write that which had already been written. And the one thing I really wanted to do was explore the idea that you know, Dark Sun of the Moon is pretty widely recognized as this great monumental work, and it's the third best-selling album in the history of the recorded medium. The idea is, you know, Dark Side of the Moon didn't create itself out of nothing. There's a whole backstory to that, and how on earth a band went from being at loose ends, losing its leader, to five short years later creating this monumental work, I thought that was a story worth telling. And what that meant was writing a book that focused on the music, not really spending time on the personalities, not getting into the business end of things that much, just really focusing on the music, which is, after all, what the band leaves behind. And so that was really the approach that I took. One of the other tidbits on this, the book focuses on the earliest of days, 66, 67, Sid's departure in the earliest part of 68, and then by title indicates that we'll be going to Darkside, but we do thankfully go beyond that. 
and we were talking about the fact that Sid's ghost, as it were, hung out for quite some time, and I don't say this in a bad way at all, because as you said, the relationship did continue. Gosh, Gilmore played drums on one of Sid Barrett's Madcap Laughs, one of his solo releases, I don't really recall. He produced Barrett, the second solo Okay, album. there we go. Yeah, yeah, so the relationship did continue. Oh, yeah. So, looking then at Wish You Were Here, this is the one that calls out, and I guess the most obvious way of saying it would be, one, the title, Wish You Were Here. But then there's Shine On You Crazy Diamond, and there's other references, and oh my gosh, the EMI machine, I suppose that is where Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar come from, I suppose. I just reasoned that one out now. But let's talk about that, please, because they didn't shy away from direct or indirect nods to Sid by the time we got to Wish You Were Here, my favorite album. Right. What I think they did, and some of this is just supposition on my part, but somewhat Mm -hmm. educated supposition, I'd like to think. I think that they used the idea of their relationship with Sid and their thoughts about him as kind of a jumping-off point to sort of write to wider universal topics. It comes back to another one of the reasons why The Dark Side of the Moon is so successful and so timeless, no pun intended. The lyrical subject matter on those albums isn't dated. There's, True, yes. you know, the things that are being written about don't scream 1973 or 1974 or 5. They're fairly universal topics. The things that are being discussed are things that can be related to widely. And so I think even though that, you know, Roger Waters, who was the sole lyricist at that point, from that point forward, certainly had Sid Barrett in mind when he was writing the lyrics to those songs. They're bigger than that. I would say that his holding Sid in his mind was the germ from which those songs grew but they go beyond just that. Truly. We're talking about this evolution of the sound, and what I really, one, love about this book, and two, I'm going to just stop short of demanding this of you, okay, Bill? But (laughs) I really, this is very much like a Music History 101, or it could be. You need a companion disc on this one. You know, you have very direct references. You mentioned songs specifically when you're talking about, oh, they're finding their sounds, and here's one that Roger Waters dominates on, but you can't help but hear Gilmore coming in. Or (laughs) One time you even mentioned the Roger Waters signature scream. There's just phrasings in there that people need to be able to go, oh, track three, okay, there it is, I got it. Have you considered this? I can't be the first one to ask this of you. Well, the thing is, is it's very kind of you to put it that way. I would actually look at it the other way around is that the book could be a companion to their catalog Mm. because I actually go through each of their albums and all their singles in chronological order and discuss every single one of them from their earliest demos up through Dark Side of the Moon. And then, as you mentioned, I touch on some of the later material. And in late 2016, the uh, massive box set, the early years, came out. It's more than two dozen discs. And a lot of that material, I was thrilled when that came out. I had maybe a third of that material on bootleg, but the rest of it was all new to me, even me, a really hardcore Pink Floyd fanatic collector. But, you know, because I discuss and address every one of their songs, pretty much you could just open through any given chapter, and if you take the album that matches up with it, you could follow along that way. That's true. That's a good point. One could simply do that remote in hand to fast forward a little bit. That's a really good point. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Bill Kopp, author of Reinventing Pink Floyd, From Sid Barrett to the Dark Side of the Moon.
You're listening to KVCR. It's on 91.9 KVCR, also at kvcrnews.org. This is going to occupy a one-hour show, so I want to wrap with a couple of things. I'm going to wrap, in essence, with the very beginning and the very end. There is a wonderful introduction by Jerry Shirley. Would you go through who he is for us and for you and the book? Jerry Shirley was the drummer in Humble Pie, who were a really, really big band of the early 70s, especially the live scene here in the U.S., Peter Frampton being the member among the group who go on to the biggest fame subsequently. But Jerry Shirley was also a close friend of Sid Barrett, and he was asked to play drums on both of Sid Barrett's solo albums. I reached out to Jerry to ask him if he would agree to an interview. He's typically very reluctant to give interviews, especially about Sid Barrett, because uh, according to Jerry, they typically want to focus on uh, Sid's mental illness and all the crazy stories and things like that. So when I first reached out to Jerry, he told me, no, respectfully, no, I'm not going to give you an interview. And you know, I didn't push, but I did just explain that, you know, uh, that's not the kind of book that I'm writing. I really want to focus on the music. And he reconsidered and gave me wonderful interview, provided a whole lot of detail and insight, and in the end was so happy with the experience that he consented to write the foreword for the book. That was... He has a book of his own, too, which is delightful. It's one of the cleverest titles ever for a book by a drummer. It's called Best Seat in the House. <laughs> I'm going to have to contact him on that one and see if I can get that out here and get something going with them. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was actually conflating him with one of the other folks that you speak of in the book. There's so many. Oh, my God. I'm jealous of the interviews that you got to go through. Some folks might say had to go through, but I know that you you feel the, the same way I do and that you got to go through and you were lucky to go through them. But I knew that there was one amongst there, and it sounds like it was Jerry, that you got to hear a lot about Sid because you promised that you really weren't looking for the same old dirt on Sid Barrett. And so that's... That's really nice to open up doors for you like that. The other thing that Jerry said, we said, well, I'll agree the interview on one condition. And I said, what's that? He said, you also have to interview Willie Wilson. And I said, well, since he's already on my list of people that I want to interview, I I, I suppose I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure. And Willie is certainly lesser known, but an important part of the story. He was around for a lot of Pink Floyd's uh, sessions, just, you know, there as a friend. When Pink Floyd did their three-city tour of The Wall in 1980, Los Angeles, New York, and London, Willie was the drummer in the surrogate band the extra four musicians who wore rubber masks to make them look like Waters Wright, Mason, and Gilmore. Yes. Now, this is something I'd actually skipped over due to time, but thank you for opening that door. This will blow people away. There's a photo somewhere, and I'm pretty sure it's included in your book, but there's a picture of Rick Wright holding the Rick Wright mask up in front of him, and you think, okay, that's that's cute. What a lark. Okay. But then you find out. Tell us about this. Go ahead and restate, if you will. They had such a limited tour, but yet they did not. Right. In 1980, Pink Floyd wanted to tour the wall, but because of the ambitious stage production, it simply was impractical in 1980 to do that widely. So they only did it in New York, London, and Los Angeles. I think they did roughly one week in each city. And the music involved took more than four musicians in places and so while the roadies were constructing a giant wall between the stage 
and the audience during the show at various points. Well, the band that comes along and one of the lyrics of the song says, you know, they sent us along as a surrogate band and there are four musicians on stage all looking like Pink Floyd, but actually four other guys. But near the end of the show, the audience was looking at just a wall. Occasionally a brick would come out and there would be, you know, on a, uh, like a forklift, essentially, a David Gilmore would come out and he'd stand there and play a guitar solo. And Roger Waters would come out in front with a microphone and sing, you know, and so then they'd go back behind the wall and play some more. It was an odd production. Very, very different from the subsequent versions of the wall that Roger Waters mounted tours oh, of yeah. as a solo artist. Yeah, like the thing in Berlin or whatever with all the different artists right. doing the songs. Pretty incredible yeah, stuff. Cindy Lauper, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, beyond that, it was really incredible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It was, it was interesting. It was just. Uh, it was, well, uh, who would have thought the Scorpions would come in and do Pink Floyd? That's one of maybe the last <laughs> associations. It's well, much like Pat Boone and Metallica, but then he went and did that. Right. Well, so we talked about the beginning with the introduction with Jerry Shirley, and now let's go to the end. It's a nice way of titling it: "Things Left Unsaid." It's more than a bunch of quotes. How to describe this? Had you already wrapped up the book and then went, mm, here's some great stuff that needed to be used. This last chapter, how did it come about? I think part of the reason that Pink Floyd has always resonated with me was their creative approach is one that I could identify with. They were always sort of methodical and kind of linear. And that's the way that I approach things, too. When I'm writing, even when I'm writing a shorter piece that's maybe a few thousand words, mm. I write the beginning first, then I write the middle, then I write the end. But I know from the beginning where I'm going. And so from the time I began writing the book, I knew what all the chapters were going to be about. So I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to have a chapter in which I had people sort of reflect back on the legacy of the band, what the band's music meant to them as individuals and as musicians. And so it wasn't an afterthought. It was something that I knew from the beginning okay. I was going to do. Now, some of the quotes that I got stopped me in my tracks, yeah. especially one, and I, I should be able to quote it from memory. With his trademark facility for memorable phrases, Robin Hitchcock described Sid Barrett as, quote, part of Pink Floyd's acceleration. He was the rocket booster that got Pink Floyd off into the stratosphere and then just fell away. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Robert Hitchcock just talks like that. He's just a man who's just full of really, really well-connected thoughts. And I've interviewed him before a few times about his own music. Presumably. When I reached out to him to just, hey, let's talk about Pink Floyd, he was quite enthusiastic to do so and gave me that quote. And I think if I went back and listened to the tape, I'd probably hear myself saying, oh, my gosh, that's going in the book. Hmm. Because it was just such a wonderful quote. And it really summed up, you know, I mean, Sid was so important to what they did, you know, then he's just sort of fell away. But, you know, had it not been for the momentum that he had given them, any other band, if they had lost their leader like that, yeah. they wouldn't have gotten to make another album. In any other era, they would have been dropped and we would have never heard from them again. They would not have been given the freedom to make another album. It was a product of the times. You know, it was a lot of serendipity. If things hadn't happened just the way that they did, we would have never had The Dark Side of the Moon or any of the other albums like that. I've been speaking with Bill Kopp for the entirety of this edition of KVC Arts. More on reinventing Pink Floyd, from Sid Barrett to The Dark Side of the Moon, at blog.musoscribe.com 
or reinventingpinkfloyd.com. And it's with this program that we transition from a one-hour show heard twice weekly to being a half-hour show heard three times weekly, and that begins this Sunday evening at 6 Pacific Standard Time. Thanks again to Bill Kopp and here at KBCR. Thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Sharina Wad. Most past programs can be found at kvcrnews.org slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support, which you can do any time of the year. Just go to kvcrnews.org slash support. And thanks again. Thanks again.